Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is Episode 29, Retrospective Denials. My guest, Martha Gaines, is a 1983 cum laude graduate of the University of Wisconsin Law School and received her LLM in 1993 from the same school. Her thesis is titled, I Do Make House Calls, Effective Legal Representation from Our Client's Perspective. Ms. Gaines, is on the faculty of the National Criminal Defense College in Macon, Georgia, and the New York State's Defenders Association in Albany, New York. Ms. Gaines and several colleagues founded the Center for Patient Partnerships at the University of Wisconsin in September 2000. The center trained students from the schools of law, medicine, nursing, pharmacy, and social work to provide advocacy to cancer patients. Ms. Gaines teaches a patient advocacy course where students are joined in interdisciplinary teams that help cancer patients understand their diagnosis and get the information necessary to make critical treatment decisions and supports patients' efforts to obtain the treatment they need. The center also conducts research about issues relevant to patient care and health care delivery from the patient's perspective. Martha Gaines, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Thank you for having me. I would like to start, so in an article on retrospective denials, and I'll ask you to define that, but you said, how much more laid bare Can it be that our health insurance system is not about health nor caring, but just for profit? We'll come back to that statement, but I'd like to know what are retrospective denials and what are the problems with them? Retrospective denials happen when insurance companies either give pre-approval or prior authorization, depending on which which level is required. Or tell the inform the uh, usually the uh, healthcare provider that prior authorization or pre-approval is not necessary, and um, that the patient can proceed with the care. The patient proceeds with the care, and then after um, the healthcare is 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 done, the patient receives a bill for that care with a subsequent decision, post-care decision by the insurance company not to cover for some reason. And how does that create problems? Well, patients are uh, left with the bill, ultimately, is the problem it creates, um, because healthcare providers will, for some, sometimes, for some period of time, uh, support the patient while they appeal this retrospective denial. Uh, but um, when all is said and done, um, patients have 
always signed something uh, before the care um, proceeds. They always sign something that says, uh, if for any reason the insurance company doesn't pay, um, I know I'm liable for this. Um, so w what I call the firstborn document. I'll give you my firstborn if this care isn't covered. Uh, and very often the signing of that document is pretty um, benign. And even uh, oftentimes when patients look sort of confused at the person who's having them sign the document, usually an admissions kind of person, hospital admissions or billing person in the um, in the clinic, uh, the person will sort of nod reassuringly and say, it's okay, this is just kind of a you know, this is kind of a formality because your insurer's already approved care. So many times, I, I've signed these documents many times, and, and as I say, many times that I've been told, don't worry about this, this is just a formality because your insurer's already uh, um, pre-approved the care, which, of course, um, isn't actually an accurate reassurance because <clears throat> insurers can retrospectively deny. Well, one of my understandings is that if an agent acts for a company, that they have to give accurate information. So if they say that it's been pre-approved, how come that's not fraud? Because they include this little uh, caveat at the end, sort of the getaway car, that says in every one of these conversations, and I've read transcripts of numbers of them, they always say at the end, by the way, this is not a guarantee of payment. And most of, you know, some enormous percentage, I don't want to quote a percentage because I don't know it, but generally speaking, patients aren't involved in these conversations. These occur between care providers, healthcare organizations, hospitals, clinics, doctors, offices, those kinds of things, and insurance companies. And a patient is nowhere in the vicinity and certainly not on the phone. And what always happens after the caveat is, is spoken is that the person on the other end says, yep, uh-huh, okay, thanks, and that's the end of that because everybody's used to this. And in fact, historically, um, courts have sort of protected insurers in this case. They have said, well, you did say that it wasn't a guarantee of payment, so I guess the healthcare organization had no right to expect that. But again, even if that's true, I mean, even if that would be and I think this is changing somewhat. I, it's not rapid, and I can't say, you know, that we're out of the woods on that one. But I think some courts are beginning to say, hold on a minute, what is a reasonable expectation of, of you know, what, why isn't this a guarantee of coverage, essentially? Why shouldn't this be a guarantee of coverage? Why shouldn't insurers be held to doing their homework? Um, and absent any kind of fraud or any kind of change of the care plan, right? Uh, and those are things that happen. Um, on the provider side, um, you know, insurers should be required to pay if they've indicated that they that they will pay for this particular care at this particular time. So, you know, it may be beginning to change. There's some hope for that. Um, there's also some hope that all the bipartisan surprise medical bill legislation that's coming up in state and federal legislative context, that there, there's some hope that we might include this retrospective denial phenomenon in those bills. It hasn't happened yet. Those bills generally cover 
surprise medical billing that consists of out-of-network providers um, showing up in in-network care situations. So, you know, the anesthesiologist is out of network or, you know, they asked some guy to come over from another hospital to assist in your cardiac stent or whatever, and that person bills and is out of network. So that's generally what surprise medical billing refers to, but there is some hope that we might be including this in those bills, and then, you know, we'll see what happens to surprise medical billing because <laughs> it's, you know, surprise medical billing is sort of that hot potato. Nobody wants to lose money, yep. you know, not, not the providers, not the healthcare organizations, and not the, and not the uh, insurers. So who gets left holding the bag or the hot potato or whatever you want to say is the sort of $64 question. I thought that generally, a contract in favor of a corporation that is boilerplate, you generally rule in favor of the consumer who has less power. So I'm somewhat surprised by the court rulings. Can you comment on that? I can tell you that um, in most of these cases, patients get left holding the bag and the, or holding the bill, as it were, and that an interesting additional phenomenon happens, which is that depending on whether it's a hospital or a doctor's office or that kind of thing, for a time after the retrospective denial, the, the hospital folks or the uh, doctor's office folks are on the patient's side and rooting and, and helping them and providing justification and appealing and appealing to you know, independent external review and doing all kinds of, you know, taking it all up the ladder. But but it, at the point at which it becomes clear that the insurer is not going to pay and probably the patient doesn't have the money to, to bring this as a lawsuit in court, which is, you know, in my experience, the vast, vast majority. Um, hospitals, care providers sort of slide to the other side of the table and in the nicest possible tone, right, offer them, offer patients um, a, you know, 20% discount and uh, a payment plan, you know, a time to pay, which is really confusing and disconcerting, to say the least, to patients who feel, hey, wait a minute, last week you thought it was abominable that I was being required to pay this, and now you're telling me I can have you know, a 20% discount in time to pay. What's that about? Well, why the change in tune? So it's a very, um, yeah, it's a, it's a really disquieting kind of phenomenon. For patients, for sure, I you know, expect it's probably not that much fun for billing people either, but that's their job. So it would seem to me that any type of honorable company would not do this. If they said they were going to pay, they would pay. How did insurance companies even come up with this? Do you know? Well, in some cases, um, and, you know, need to be quick to say this to make sure that, uh, you know, it's not just insurance companies, right? So if uh, a hospital or care provider um, pre-authorizes or pre-approves a procedure um, and then does a different procedure, or in cases I've had 
actually codes it differently because the coding people don't agree with the physician about the, a proper code for billing what she or he, the physician, is doing. Then what happens is that uh, admissions folks prior auth or pre-approved a code, you know, A, and the billing office bills code B, and insurers will say, yeah, no, we did not um, pre-approve that. And so it happens that coding gets changed for kind of internal, definitional, political reasons. It happens that coding gets changed because the actual thing they do is different. Um, Pre-approving is something people need to know something about who are doing it because if you're doing a certain surgery and it might, when you get in there, require you to also do this, you need to pre-approve all of the, you know, all the possible iterations of the surgery. And if that's not done, then when you get in there and say, oh, we got to take this too, you may not be paid for that. So that's a skill set that people have in a system that isn't, you know, that's so dependent on reimbursement and coding and piecemeal kind of payment of individual things. So that happens. And of course, fraud happens. And I think, you know, the origins of prior auth, at least partly, right, <laughs> at least in justification, some of the energy behind prior auth was to stop unnecessary care, which includes just too much care where doctors were doing a lot of things in order to get reimbursed for it, even if the patient didn't need it. Or the wrong care, that is, doctors who have always used a particular device because it's what they were taught, trained to do and it's what they're used to, but there's plentiful data that that device or intervention or drug or whatever doesn't work or is eclipsed by something better. And if doctors don't step, then there's this enormous you know, variability in practice and insurers say, hey, wait a minute, variability in practice to some extent is understandable because everybody's a little different like patients. But variability in practice because you're incompetent um, or not up to date or overcharging, um, you know, doing more things, removing more gallbladders than are, you know, than need to be removed because you're trying to make money on gallbladders um, or gallbladder surgeries. That's unacceptable. So there was a, you know, it, it, at least some part of the justification for prior authorization process is, is, is I think, grounded in a somewhat patient-centered um, energy, but it's um, it has you know become a, a huge political issue between providers and insurers that has negative consequences for patients in a number of ways. But the the way that you know that I'm particularly interested in at this point is this: there's not things like delay of care or not approving the appropriate care, but rather is this retrospective denial of care that's been approved and leaving patients with enormous debt and arguably they shouldn't have it. Well, and I live in the Midwest where people pay their bills, even if I beg them not to. <laughs> one of the things I've heard is that it used to be that only a small amount of things were required for prior approval, particularly experimental mm -hmm. procedures, but I've heard that mm -hmm. more and more is being required for prior approval. Mm -hmm. so I think that's true, and I think that, you know, on one hand, that's terrible because it requires a huge amount of 
money and time to be put, you know, more money and time to be put in administrative health care than we already have, which your your listeners will be well familiar with the, the you know, the criminal nature of how much money we spend on healthcare administration in the United States, but setting that aside. But I think, you know, the reality is, is that there are some procedures that are very standard that just shouldn't be done anymore, right? And our system's not very good at getting rid of them, don't get me wrong, but I'll give you an example. In most cases, the use of a Schwann, what's called a Schwann or Schwann-Gans catheter, right, which is a device that's put in to monitor heart function during surgery, that kind of thing. The use of a Swan-Gans catheter doesn't change outcomes in surgery, We, we in most surgeries. I mean, there are still some where it's appropriate to use, but it used to be, and still is in some places, used like everyone does it, um, because that's how they were trained and that's what they're used to, and they're used to having that piece of data, and doctors feel more comfortable if they have that piece of data. But the fact that it is inter- invasive to the patient and, right, that's cause infection, those kinds of things, right, and also not justifiable in terms of what effect it has on the safety or the quality of care means that insurers would want to, for instance, prior on the use of a swan gas catheter, right? They'd say, no, we're not paying for that because that is not a valuable use of resources, yours, mine, or ours. So there are examples like that. I mean, I think, and again, it's not a very good, um, it's a sort of prior op is kind of over and under inclusive, right? It also doesn't get at things like most medial meniscal tears in the knee, right? We now know that uh, an average medial meniscal tear, that the outcome of surgery versus six weeks of physical therapy is the same. So we know that people, unless there's some reason that they need to have surgery, need to whatever, unless there's some reason that would be individually based, they shouldn't have surgery for medial meniscal tears. But hospitals still employ people whose daily keep is made on repairing medial meniscal tears, and insurers, I think, are not have not been effective at saying, actually, no, we're not going to pay for this because the evidence base is that this should be six weeks of physical therapy. Um, And in some ways, we don't really have a culture that supports it, right? Because if you're a construction worker, somebody who does, you know, low-level menial job, and you can't take six weeks off to do physical therapy and wait for your knee to get better, giving you a surgery, which gives you a visible injury that you can off of work for for some period of time and might repair more quickly, these are the kinds of things that prior art doesn't touch, I think. So we have this problem. What is the solution within our current healthcare system? How would we solve that? I think there are several ways to solve it, right? It can be contractual or it can be legislative. There are two ways, really. Um, contractually, what uh, healthcare providers could do is contract with when they do their negotiation, negotiate their contracts with insurers. They could say, um, when an argument arises where there's been prior auth or pre-approval and it gets reversed, that's going to be between us. You and us are going to have to figure that out. And you know, you can have it be um, arbitrated. You can have it. You can have any 
appropriate solution. You can say, we'll split them all 50-50 or we'll have whatever. I mean, there are lots of ways you could do that, but it could be built into the contract that that providers could say, yeah, we're not going to take your insureds unless you agree to this. Now, you know, I don't know enough to know whether the kinds of, um, the kind of, to know the kind of negotiating power that healthcare providers have um, with insurers. I mean, I think probably larger providers have more leverage than smaller ones, but um, this could be baked into the contractual agreement that patients are held harmless, essentially, um, from these kinds of disagreements and post hoc kind of, where patients have no ability to protect themselves at all from unexpected, enormous expenses. And then the second way is legislatively, which is what I was talking about before about the, the surprise medical bills, but including this and that, and basically saying as a legislative matter, yeah, if prior approval or preauthorization has been given or deemed unnecessary, insurers and healthcare providers are on the hook. Patients are not. Patients are held harmless for these kinds of misunderstandings. So that you know, again, the conversations we can't, we aren't even on those the phone for those conversations. And when they are, and when we, even when we are on the phone for those conversations, we get the same answer they get, which is, yep, yep, mm-hmm, no problem. Oh, by the way, it's not a guarantee of payment. And insurers go about their merry way. And in terms of a long-term solution, what do you think needs to happen? If you could change the healthcare system or just something else, what would you like to see happen so that patients aren't stuck with this burden, or even stuck with medical debt. What kinds of changes in the in, in the overall system? Is that what you're asking? Yes. I've been telling my students for twenty plus years um, because I want them to be aware of it always. You know, we shouldn't be having this conversation. You realize we shouldn't be having this conversation. We're the only industrialized nation in the world that is having you know, these conversations about billing and retroactive denials and pre-approvals and prior ops and this and that. It's not, not to say other countries don't have pre-approval process, but they have a single pre-approval process. They have a single decider, and they have a pretty standardized process and payment process. They don't have retrospective denials. Like, it just doesn't happen. And so, you know, what I think needs to happen, if I could wave a magic wand, I would have single or at least a small number of payers. I'm agnostic on some level about whether it's the government or, you know, two or three private entities that are regulated by the government and whatever. I mean, I'm a bit agnostic about it, but not entirely, because I don't think healthcare ought to be a profit-gouging kind of enterprise, and it clearly is in the United States. Because, you know, just like I don't think private schools ought to be a profiteering enterprise or municipal fire services and things like that. I mean, um, I think we ought to pay for it, and we do pay for it. And people who live in countries that have single-payer systems do pay for it. I mean, that's, you know, that's the deal. But what we shouldn't be paying for is thousands of intermediaries and prices that are unrelated to the actual cost of care for any individual person because they are such an amalgamation of who didn't pay and who paid less than we think they ought to pay, again, to say nothing of whether that relates at all to the cost. Nobody even knows the cost of health care in the United States. I mean, we, we can't really know because nobody really knows what you mean when you say cost, right? 
I don't know whether you mean this set of sutures and the people who are here tonight and the drugs we used and the personnel present. I mean, they don't know whether you mean the lights and the bill and the and the and the people who are going to build this care and the night watchmen and the the people who didn't pay. You know, you, you just keep adding things, and nobody has any real idea what the unit of care costs in the United States. So, before we end, is there anything that you would like to add? I think that the thing that I want people to know is the situation that this creates for people who are incredibly responsible, insured their whole lives, busted their keisters to have the either to buy outright or to have employment where they have insurance, and, and still they wind up in this kind of situation. It affects people far more who don't have, who are not, say, on Medicare or Medicaid, than it affects others, right? So it affects hardworking, middle-class people more than anybody else. And people like the client I had a couple of years ago who had had ovarian cancer and been treated for it was uh, ultimately had genetic testing and found to be BRCA1 positive, which is a genetic predisposition to uh, certain kinds of cancer, including breast and ovarian cancer. Well, having already had her ovaries removed, she then um, decided, made a difficult decision in her early 60s to have uh, double mastectomy and both have her breast removed. Her husband called for pre-approval. The hospital called for pre-approval. The insurer said, yep, yep, no, this is definitely a covered benefit and prior auth is not required. And so go ahead, fine. And, you know, two weeks after the surgery, she gets a bill for $62,000 because her insurance company, in hindsight, decided it was experimental and therefore not medically necessary. And, you know, we appealed to the insurance company three times and and then, you know, they claimed to have had an expert witness who said it was, that claimed to say it was experimental, not medically necessary. And then when we reappealed and sort of threatened them, basically, they came back and reversed themselves and said, oh, we, we contacted six more experts, all of whom said it was not experimental and it was standard of care. So, you know, had they not found us, because we don't charge for our services, you know, they almost certainly would not have been able to afford to have legal representation and would not have been able to afford to appeal this effectively. You know, another case, which was a woman who had a nerve ablation, the third one she had in her back, first two were paid for by insurance. The third one was not. Same insurer, same doctor. But this time, the internal billing woman at their person, I don't know what was a woman, at the hospital decided that the, what the doctor had prior to was not the correct code to bill and build a different code. And when that wasn't paid, everybody turns to the, you know, the hospital turns to the patient and says, okay, here's your bill for $13,000. She's a hairdresser. I mean, she doesn't have $13,000. And what's more, she was completely confused. And, right? and I, you know, I can sort of go on and on about the various cases we see, but this happens. And, you know, one of the most interesting things about this, Joe, is that when we wrote the article for Gamma. Tom Berwick and, and one of our, my students, Austin Aletta, and I wrote this article for Gamma. Gamma came back to us and said, we need data on the frequency and the fiscal impact of this. And we went out far and wide to try to find this data, and there's nothing published on it. So we went around 
I did two things. One is I went around and talked to a bunch of former CEOs or current CEOs of big insurance companies. And they all said, this doesn't happen. And then we went to this group that's kind of affiliated with the American Hospital Association and others who have a listserv that goes to billing people. And they sent out a survey for us, just a short survey saying, does it happen? When does it happen? How much money is it? On, you know, how often would you say it happens? And lo and behold, it does happen. <laughs> and, you know, it does involve oftentimes significant amounts of money. So there's a disconnect. I don't disbelieve the CEOs. I think they're telling the truth. I think what happens is that either the billing people don't take it to the CFOs because why would you? I mean, they're, they're just supposed to collect debt. That's what they're told, collect debt. And plausible deniability, if your CFO doesn't know that you're doing this, then they can sort of claim plausible deniability, right? Or the CFOs are told. But the uh, CFOs give the same, give the CEOs this kind of plausible deniability. Like, we don't tell them that this is happening, then they won't know. And this, you know, came up recently in, at institutions like Yale Health Center and a bunch of other uh, quite prominent. There's one, I think, Johns Hopkins, maybe not me, it wasn't John Hopkins. I think it was something else in Baltimore. But anyway, where these organizations were going after patients quite um, aggressively. And I think most often CEOs don't know this. Um, and aren't told as sort of a part of a, you know, quote from the Nixon years, plausible deniability. So it's a problem that goes hidden. And our goal is to try to get this better known and acknowledged and addressed. Well, having seen some of the propaganda that the insurance companies put out, I'm not so sure that they don't know it. That'd be an interesting discussion or something to try and find out. But we don't have that capability right now. Well, the first comment to our JAMA article, if you go look at our JAMA article, the first comment is clearly written by someone in insurance who says this doesn't happen. And I've had people I know well and trust, you know, in as individuals. I mean, I care about them as individuals. I don't know anything about their how they behave in their work lives, but I've had them say, this doesn't happen in our company. And I know it happens in their company because I've had cases involving their company. It became the most interesting part of writing that article, actually, but I felt like deep throat, you know? We were going around trying to get whistleblowers, to, and the whistleblowers know what happened, but getting some kind of a larger picture and some kind of a measure of how often and how much was impossible. That is interesting. And on that note, I would like to say thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. <laughs> you bet. Well, I don't think I explained Medicare for All very well, but <laughs> but uh, thank you for having me. And, uh, I hope this is uh, useful to the folks who are listening. Well. I think you explained this topic very well and gave people some good information about it. So thank you. Good. You're welcome. My pleasure. Thanks for reaching out. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Information about this podcast can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. 
Thank you for listening. 